0: Esther chapter 2. I'm going to read, we're going to read just the the second half of chapter 2 and then the whole of chapter 3. And then I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 2. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Fan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Asuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, for he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asuerus." In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Asuerus, they cast pair, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Asuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all of the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. And the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Azuweris, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good God. Thank you that we have sung that and declared that this morning. And we believe that to be true. That you are a God who is highly exalted above all things. And all that you do for your people is good. Thank you that you are a faithful God. That all of your promises are true. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that all of the promises find their yes and there are men in you. Thank you that you've shown yourself to be faithful as you came and lived perfectly and died for us. I thank you that you are now seated at the right hand of the Father. And you've sent your spirit to minister to us, to comfort us, to lead us into all truth. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do that amongst us this morning. That in this dark passage of this book, you would show us the light of the gospel, that you would show us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would willingly and joyfully trust him in every circumstance. So, Father, we ask all of these things in your name. We ask them for the glory of the Son, and we ask Holy Spirit for your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God's people here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are on the threshold of the darkest moment in their history. The empire that they find themselves in literally wants them dead, literally wants every single one of them dead. And so far in chapters 1 and chapters 2, we've seen the depths of the depravity of the empire that they live in. And it's an empire which isn't theirs. It's not kind of God's people's empire. They were once part of a glorious empire of Israel, but that was taken away from them as they refused to acknowledge that God is who he was and refused to walk in obedience. And now they're living as exiles in a foreign land. And the king of this kingdom, we were introduced to him in chapter one, King Asuerus, we've seen that he is power hungry, that he is just pursuing his own comfort. In chapter two, last week, we saw just the, the depths of his sexual depravity. He wants to replace his wife. He wants a new queen. And in order to do that, he gathers uh, the best kind of looking, the most beautiful virgins in the land. Hundreds, maybe thousands of young girls to come together. And, and they go through this intensive ritual of purification. And then he has sex with them until he finds one that pleases him. And we saw at the end of the passage in chapter 2 last week. That the one who finds her way into the king's arms and becomes queen is Esther. And chapter 2 kind of is so clear, particularly the start, that this young girl who becomes queen esther is a jew she's a jew like we see that, that that she is from the tribe of benjamin she is she is um a cousin to mordecai who's who was from the lineage of kish she's a jew but in chapter two we see that she she hides her identity she hides who she is And we can kind of just place ourselves into Esther's shoes just for a minute and and maybe try and imagine what it would have been like for her. Imagine as a young girl being being ripped away from your family, having to perform for the king and having to hide your true identity and then being thrown into the highest position that a woman could have in the empire. I wonder what it would look like for Esther to trust in the providence of God in that moment. For a little teenage girl who was ripped away from her family, surely this wasn't what she dreamed of when she was growing up surely this wasn't what she aspired to when she was playing around with her toys when she was just a young girl you need to see as a jewish girl for esther in this moment the last 12 months of her life have been a walk of shame like like her people are told not to marry outside of their own people yet she does They're told not to have sex before marriage, yet she does. They're told not to have sex outside of marriage, yet she does. They're told not to eat food which hasn't been prepared kosher, yet that is what she does. She has a feast laid on for her. Esther is so far from how she would have imagined God providing for her. So far from how she would have imagined God mapping out her life. So so what does trust look like for her in that moment? At the end of chapter 2, we see that things look like they're going to take a turn. They look like they're going to kind of improve for her. Their cousin Mordecai, who, who is a Jew, and, and takes uh, Esther in as his own daughter, has been visiting the king's palace every day to check that she's okay. And in verse 19 of the passage we just wrote, we see that he is sitting there at the gate. It repeats it twice. It wants us to know really clear where Mordecai is. He's sitting at the king's gate. And this was often a place where where judges would sit. So perhaps he's kind of got himself an important job in the empire. but, But what we know is that one day he's sitting there at the gate and he's passed on some information. There are two men, two of the king's guards, Bigthan and Teresh, who are plotting together to take the king's life. And this information is passed on to Mordecai and somehow he manages to get this information to Esther. And this is a big risk for Mordecai. Presumably Big Fan and Teresh aren't the only people who are involved in this plot. Presumably there are other people in the palace who are involved. And Mordecai has to pass this information on to someone else to get it to Esther. This is a, this is a risk for him. But eventually the information gets to Esther. Esther tells the king and an investigation is launched. And they find, they find out that it's true. Big Than and Teresh are plotting to kill the king. We read that they're hanged on the gallows. The actual uh, word there is, is, is they're impaled on a wooden stake. Imagine that. They have this just, just huge wooden stake a sharpened at the end. And they literally just impale these two men on the top of the stake so everyone will see. This is a significant moment in the reign of the king. And they documented all in, in what was called the King's Chronicles. It's not the same chronicles that we have in our Bible. This was like a, a history book of the empire. Every king had their own book of chronicles. This was a significant moment. Someone's tried to assassinate the king so they write it down. Now if you're, if you're living in Persia at the time and you hear this story that there are men trying to kill the king and then someone else finds out about it and, and he puts his life on the line to get this information to the king. If you've heard this story, you know exactly what's going to happen next. You know exactly how the story is going to end off. It's obvious if you're kind of steeped in Eastern tradition, what would happen next? If someone protects the king's life, if someone risks their life like Mordecai has for the king, then the king would automatically elevate that person to a place of honor. He would recognize him. There would be a feast for that person. He would put a ring on his finger. There'd be a celebration. There'd be decrees across the empire to kind of elevate this person who has saved the king's life. That is what happens next. Yet that isn't what happens next, is it? We need to know, and hopefully we've seen so far, that this book is full of surprises. It winds and it turns in directions that we we just don't see coming and maybe we don't expect, but I want us to see, and hopefully we've seen this as well, that there is a constant thread through this book. The God's hand of providence for his people is at work of, of every second, of every minute, of every day. And if we're just unsure what that means, providence is the way that God directs all things seen and unseen, good and evil, towards his good purposes. That's what providence is. God moving everything, whether we can see it or we can't, whether it's good or bad, but moving everything according to his Good purposes. This isn't karma or, or kifara as, as Muslims would believe. It runs so much deeper than that. This is the creator God literally providing and sustaining for those that he loves. And that is what is happening on every page of this book. We might not see it, but ultimately ultimately, that is what God is doing. And if we are God's people here this morning, the same is true in our life. Every second of our day, every minute of our day, every day, every page of the life of our book God's providence is at work, even in the darkest pages imaginable of our lives. That's what we see with Esther and Mordecai as we go on through chapter 3. Now there's no recognition for Mordecai, there's no feast, there's no elevation of Mordecai like we would expect. Instead, we see a different character getting elevated So a new character is introduced to the story, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. And we've not heard of Hamadatha before. He's not mentioned in the Bible before. But if you know the Bible, if you don't know your your Old Testament, if you're going through the Bible in a year at the moment, you've literally just come across the Agagites. You've heard of them before. The Agagites were a, a nation who persistently positioned themselves as the enemies of God's people. They are the first nation to attack God's people as they're brought out of slavery in Egypt and they're in the wilderness. The Agagites come against God's people. And that was the first of many battles. There is one battle in particular which is so significant. In 1 Samuel 15, we won't go there, but 600 years before the book of Esther takes place. 1 Samuel 15, King Saul is ruling and reigning over Israel. King Saul, who was the son of Kish, and was in the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul is told by God to kill the Agagites and to kill all of them. Don't leave any of them. These are God's enemies. These are a wicked people. Don't let any of them live. Kill all of them and all of their livestock. And so King Saul goes out to battle. He kills the Agagites, but he doesn't kill them all. He spares King Agag, and he presumably spares some of Agag's family, and he takes the livestock for himself. He disobeys God's commands. And here we have, a few hundred years later, Haman, the Agagite, a picture of God's enemy. And out of the blue, as we expect God's people to be advanced, it seems like God's enemy is being advanced. We read that Haman is given a throne by the king. He's given rule. He's given position in the kingdom. Suddenly the story has turned. God's people at this moment, if they're reading the story and they've seen what Mordecai has done, they'd be expecting relief, they'd be expecting peace, they'd be expecting kind of good things to to come to them, but but life has taken a dark turn. And I wonder if any of us identify with that, that things in your life seem to be going well, you're walking faithfully, and all of of a sudden it's like the carpet gets ripped out from under our feet. And the clouds close in on what we thought was a sunny day and darkness starts to descend. And some of us might be experiencing that right now. That life has taken a turn that we did not see coming and we feel helpless. In in those moments, what do we do? Where do we go? Where do we find hope in the midst of darkness? Where do we find hope in the midst of suffering and confusion? I want us to see in this chapter more than anything else. That in those moments, in every second of every minute of every day, we need to be convinced of the providence of God. We see that as the chapter goes on here. So King Asuwaer sets a decree that that whenever Haman comes in through the city gate, everyone has to bow down to him. They have to pay respect to him. They have to pay homage to him. Every time he comes through the gate, you bow down. Who's at the gate? Mordecai is at the gate. Mordecai, who is from the tribe of Benjamin, Mordecai, who is a descendant of Kish, a descendant of Saul. Every day Haman passes through the gates and every day Mordecai can't bring himself to bow down to God's enemy. Haman is from the nation that his forefather Saul should have destroyed. And talk starts to kind of float around the other people at the gate. Why isn't Mordecai bound down? The same thing happens day after day. Haman comes in, Mordecai refuses to bow down. And so he tells the people who are kind of talking, he says, he says I'm a Jew. Maybe they'll understand why he isn't bowing down. But instead, in verse 5, they go and tell Haman. They go and tell him there's this, there's this Jew at the gate who is refusing to bow down to him. What's Haman's response? He's filled with fury. He's filled with rage. That word there, fury, is, is full of wrath. He's filled with wrath. And yet in that moment, it isn't enough for him to direct his wrath at Mordecai. It isn't enough for him to lay his hands on Mordecai and and sort him out. He wants all of Mordecai's people dead. He wants his enemy, the Jews, dead. He wants them in their entirety to to die. In verse 6, he wants them to be destroyed, to literally be annihilated. Every single one of them throughout the whole empire. Implications of the anger of this one man is literally a genocide of the Jewish people. So at this time, there are nearly a million Jews in the empire. At the same time, kind of if you know just your biblical history, at the same time as Esther is playing out here, Nehemiah and Ezra are looking at, at rebuilding the, Jerusalem, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Haman's plan would bring a stop to that. And think wider than that. God has promised to gather to himself a people under his rule, under his reign, in his place, through the descendants of Abraham. Haman's plan would bring an end to that covenant, an end to that promise. It would be over. The eternal faithfulness of God, his covenantal character, the essence of who he is, if Haman's plan comes to pass, will be compromised. But that is exactly why the darkness of this moment is only surface deep. Because the faithfulness of God cannot be compromised. His character is unchanging, he always keeps his covenants. We see in the rest of chapter three here that God's faithfulness guarantees his providence. God is never not in control. He is never blindsided. He is never caught off guard. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't lose concentration. He is always aware and He is always working out the pages of our life for his perfect purposes. Even folks, even when it feels like we are losing. The story goes on. On the first month, of the twelfth year, Haman starts to make his plans for his genocide. In the first month of the twelfth year, he wants the conditions to be perfect. So he, he consults mediums to help him um, um, select and elect a date. In verse 7, they cast per. That's like casting lots or, or literally rolling a dice, like they're waiting. They're waiting for a certain result on the dice when they rolled. And, and when it shows that result, then that's the day. That's the day that they're, that they're going to bring this, this genocide, this extermination. And so they cast pair on the first day. Nothing happens. They cast pair again the second day. Nothing happens. Day after day, week after month, it takes a whole year. 12 months, 52 weeks, a whole year, 365 days until they get the sign that it's time. A whole year, every day that passes in that year is another day that God's people exist. And here's the other thing. Every time Haman rolls the dice, he has no power of where that dice lands. He's putting the, the, the casting of pear into the hands of someone else. He can't determine where it's going to land. But there is one who can. Remember, God isn't mentioned at all in the book of Esther, but he is so clearly in the detail here. He determines our future and he determines the future for his people. And the future for his people is secure. See, in the mind of Haman, the the Jews are literally as good, uh, as gone. He goes to the king to convince him of his plan. He manufactures a a batch of lies to try and win over the king. And then just to seal the deal, he gives the king an offer he can't refuse. He says, if you you allow me to do this, if you give me the nod, I will give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, that means nothing to us, but that was serious money back in the day. Remember the size of the empire, 50 million people? 10,000 talents was the equivalent of half the annual tax revenue of the empire for one year. That is a lot of money. And understandably, maybe the king doesn't even speak. In verse 10, he just hands over his signet ring, a sign of endorsement to Haman. He doesn't want to take responsibility for himself. And he says, just go, go and do what seems good king abdicates his responsibility from the outside looking in the the fate of god's people looks like it's sealed doesn't it israel have been sold for silver they've been passed over to death god's promises are being brought to an end And, and and that is the great ambition of god's enemies the bible is clear we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we wrestle against principalities and powers that that wage war against us and those principalities and powers are satan and satan's people And the prime objective for God's people is death physical death and spiritual death. Spiritual death, they they want everyone who is born to to be blinded and and, and so they can't see and believe who God is, who He says He is. They feed everyone who is born a lie so, so that they believe that they don't really need saving from their sin and they lead them to eternal death and separation. The enemies of God's people are leading. Humanity into a spiritual death and a physical death since time began the enemies of God have been seeking to remove God's people from the face of the earth and you see that in chapter 3 of Genesis in the Garden of Eden and you see that in, in Egypt under Pharaoh and you see that in the Holocaust and you see that literally somewhere between 15 and 45 million Christians have been executed just in the last 100 years alone the enemies of God want God's people dead. Satan hates God's people. But the providence of God has already secured for his people a way that we can trust him in the face of even physical death. Elizabeth Grant this week, the last couple of weeks, has been put on end of life care. She is literally ready to die. Death is, l- is literally knocking on her door. And her pastor visited her last week and she was able to say with a smile on her face that she is ready to be with Jesus because God has secured her future her future is as secure as the day is long she will be with God in peace and joy for all eternity we need to know that what is coming tomorrow is not a surprise to God he knows he cares and he is present and listen to this he will not let his people be defeated passage goes on and concludes the scene is set for the genocide of God's people from verses 12 to 15 we see glimpses that God is at work to defeat his enemies and save his people on the 13th day of the first month the scribes are summoned Haman's plan is written down and it's sent out to all 127 provinces in the empire it's written in their own language so there can be no mistake this is what is going to happen it's signed off by the king. It is sealed with his ring. That means it's binding. There, there's nothing that the king can do to undo this decree. The letters go out the same day, on the 13th day of the first month, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews. And it goes out with speed. All 50 million people need to hear this edict. A slaughter of the Jews is coming on one day. A million Jews to be wiped out in one day after 12 months of rolling the dice on the 13th day of the first month they finally set a date and they send out this news on the 13th day of the first month now i guess many of us don't use a hebrew calendar so let me kind of help us what uh, figure out what's going on here the 13th day of the first month this was a significant day for god's people the 13th day of the first month was the night before passover Every Jew throughout the empire would have been making preparations for what was for them the biggest celebration of the year. Passover was an annual celebration to mark the salvation of God's people from Pharaoh. You see the providence in, in God's time and here. They've been cast in pair day after day, waiting for, for the right time to, to, to send out this extermination of God's people. At the same time as Haman's decree is landing, God's people would have been gathered together remembering how the angel of death had passed over their homes as God saved them from their enemies hundreds of years before. The news of their imminent death delivered it from the hands of Haman lands at the very time when they would have been most convinced, most convinced that their God is a God of providence who saves his people and defeats his enemies. You see how beautiful this is? Haman rolls the dice, but God is in control. The message from God is clear as this happens. I am the same God who delivered you from the death in Egypt, and I can deliver you from death in Persia. The providence of God never allows his people to be defeated. So we can trust him. How do we trust him? We look back and see how he saved us before chapter 3, God's people can look back at at Passover with hope and trust that God is faithful to all of his promises and he is powerful to save his people. And for God's people today, we can do the same. We can look back at at God's work of salvation at Passover, but we can also look at what Passover pointed towards, a greater salvation. And we see shadows of it all over chapter 3. I wonder if you kind of saw these things jumping out as we read through it. The enemies of God conspiring to snuff him out. God's son Israel sold to die for pieces of silver. A public declaration of death. All of it taking place during Passover. A weak and powerless ruler abdicating his responsibility to those who want God's people's dead. Can you see it in the passage? These are all shadows of the cross. Jesus, the son of God, the true and better Israel, his enemies, full of hate, conspire for his execution. He is sold for death for pieces of silver. Pilate, a weak and powerless ruler, abdicating his responsibility to God's enemies. Even Big Than and Teresh, impaled on a wooden stake because they wanted their wicked, unjust, perverted king dead. Yet Jesus is the perfect king who is impaled on a wooden cross for the wicked and unjust and perverted. Passover stands as a memorial for God's people in Persia. As the pronouncement of death is read out in the city. And this is the worst of circumstances. They are able to look back and trust in the providence of God as he saves his people. And for us this morning. Living this side of Jesus coming and living amongst us. The cross is that memorial cross is a reminder of the providence of God, a reminder that God saves his people from Satan's sin and death, a reminder that he is present and at work in the darkest of circumstances and we can trust him. If we're Christians here this morning, we can read chapter three of Esther and see and know that there is no situation that we can experience where we cannot look to the cross and trust in the providence of God. So let me kind of give us some practical ways on how we do this. 10 ways, they're brief, don't worry. 10 ways on how we can look to the cross and find ways that we can trust in the providence of God. And the first is this, we see the cross as evidence of God's justice. God is a just God, his wrath burns against sin. The sins of Haman, the sins of King Asuerus are sins against humanity, sins against God's people. But they are also sins against God and they will not go unpunished. We can trust God as we look at the cross that the atrocities in our world will not go unaccounted for. Haman, King Asuerus, Hitler, Stalin, the pimps in our city, the drug lords in our city all have to stand before God on a judgment day and they will be judged. For if God is truly just, he will have to judge us too. Our sins, every single one of our sins is an offence against God and they cannot go unpunished. For God's people, the cross reminds us that he is a God of justice. But at the same time, number two, it reminds us that God's protection is over us. We know that on the cross, Jesus died for our sin. He took the punishment that was due to us for our sin. He was tried, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was spat on and he died for our sin. And we can look at the cross and trust God because he has protected us from the wrath of God. The wrath of God, which was directed at us for our sin. Yet we were protected from it as Jesus dies for our sin on the cross. And he continues to protect us. So right now, even though we will struggle against sin, The Father looks at us and he doesn't see us steeped in our sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. We are covered and we are protected by Jesus' righteousness. And right now, where is Jesus? At the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Reminding the Father that all of our sins have been washed away by his shed blood. His protection is over his people. Number three, we can see the cross as a memorial of salvation for those who aren't Christians. We need to see the cross, what it is. It is a memorial of salvation. At the cross, God shows us that he is able to take the weight of our shame, our guilt, our constant appetite for sin, and he's able to take that away. We're able to look at the cross and trust him, and maybe for for the first time, and it doesn't matter what circumstance we are in, the pain and the struggle of life that we are experiencing now will pale into insignificance when we are faced with the reality of having to make payment for our own sin. When we stand face to face with God. We are able to look at the cross and trust that God is able to save us. That he through his son Jesus has done all that was required of us. And he is able to make it possible that on that day of judgment we will be welcomed in and not turned away. Number four, we are able to see the cross as evidence of God's deep love for us. What other God would do that? What other God would send his dearly beloved son to die for you? Every other God demands something from us, but not Jesus. Jesus died freely for us and saves us freely. Why? Because he wants something from us, because, because we deserved it, because we've earned it. No, because he loves us. We're able to look at the cross and see the love of God, and that reminds us that we can trust in him. God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were at our worst, he died for us. So we can trust him with Everything. Number five, we can look at the cross and see it as a demonstration of the power of God. The cross is not a memorial of defeat, folks. The cross is a demonstration of the power of God. We look at the cross and it's empty. Because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering Satan, sin and death. God has shown at the cross that he is more powerful than anything else in all of the world. So if we are struggling with sin... God has shown us at the cross that he is powerful to defeat it. If we are struggling with the circumstances of life, God has shown us at the cross that he is powerful to use those circumstances for his glory and for our good. If we are struggling with demonic forces, God shows us at the cross that they are no match for him. So we can put our trust in God as the only one who is powerful to save us from our sin, from Satan and from death. At the cross we are able to see it as a reminder that we are united to him. We are united to God through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We have been united to God through His Spirit. We have been born again with bodies that no longer lust after sin, but bodies that are truly temples of the Holy Spirit. God is with us. God dwells with us. That means that wherever we are, we are not alone. God is literally with us in the midst of our struggle. His Holy Spirit is our means for comfort and peace. That means that we can pray and know that He hears and he acts we can trust that god is with us as we look at the cross and we can trust that we are united to one another as we look at the cross number seven as we are united to god he also unites us to one another we are brought into a spiritual family the church that means we don't need to struggle alone not only do we have the spirit but we have each other Folks, let us not neglect meeting with one another. We are not designed to to navigate through life's up and downs and struggles of life on our own. It's impossible. That is why we will constantly push each other towards gospel community and live in open lives with one another. God has given us a body which we are part of to care for one another. As a means of help for one another. As a means of wisdom for one another. As a means of comfort in our time of need. As much as we need God with us, we need one another with us as well. Number eight, we can look at the cross as a reminder that God's word is perfect. Every single detail of Jesus' death lined up perfectly with all of the prophecies and promises that were given hundreds of years before. He did everything that he said he would do in exactly the way that he said he would do it we can look at the cross and see and know and trust that his word is true and whatever it says in here we can stand on it we can trust that God has given us all that we need not just to survive and exist but to flourish in any circumstance number nine we can see the cross as evidence of God's eternal providence the cross wasn't a surprise to God Right from the foundation of the world, God was planning this out. It was his means of saving his people. That means there is not one situation that we are going through that is a surprise to God. He sees it all coming and, and because he knows what is coming, he is able to perfectly provide for us. That means we can trust him now, even, even if things feel like they're, they're going in a totally different direction than what we think they should be going. He sees and he knows and he will be faithful to fulfill his promises. We need to know that our means of hope is not trusting in human means of escape. It is not in worldly help. It is not in trusting in ourselves. Our means of help in our time of trouble is in the eternal faithfulness of God who always keeps his promises. And finally, number 10. You can look at the cross and see it as the way to an eternity with God. Our struggles are real. The conflict that we are engaged in is real. We are battling against forces that are seeking to destroy us and bring us down. We need to trust in God that one day the battle will end. Verse 15 at the end of chapter 3. Haman thinks that he's won. He sits down to have a drink with the king. It seems to be one of his favorite pastimes, the king. They they sit down to have a celebratory drink. The empire around him is thrown into confusion. Verse 15 is stuffed full of irony. We're meant to read that, I think, and almost just crack a little smile. The writer here is making a mockery of God's enemies. Haman thinks he holds all the cards, yet he is weak, powerless, and already defeated. And the same is true of our enemies, folks. At the cross, God defeated his enemies. And one day the pain and the struggle that we endure now will cease. We can look at the cross and trust in God that the death of Jesus and his resurrection was just a foretaste of what is to come for his people a day is coming when we will rise with him and we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus himself will wipe away every tear and our struggles will be over the darkness of our situations are real our battles are fierce the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that we can trust God in all circumstances, even if we cannot see him at work. He will remain faithful to his promises. He will not let our enemies overcome us. He will never leave us. And he's given us all we need to trust him now. And he's prepared a place for us where we will rest with him forever when our struggles and our battles are over. Heavenly Father, we see the reality of the darkness of the world that not only Esther and Mordecai lived in, but we live in today. We feel the weight of, of just living, the, just the, the daily struggle of fighting against sin, fighting against our flesh, trying to live faithful lives in a world which feels like it is closing in on us. We feel the weight of that, yet, yet in your word, we are encouraged to trust in your providence. So help us to do that this morning. Help us to look back and see the cross as the great memorial, the great reminder that you are faithful to your promises, that you are the only one in, in the whole of the universe who is, who is worth placing our trust in. And Father, we thank you that, that you know what is coming, that tomorrow is not a surprise to you, next year is not a surprise to you. You see what is coming and you have already secured our future for us. Father, we thank you that you have loved us. The depth of your love is shown to us as you sent your dearly beloved son to live amongst us, to die for us, to be nailed, to be impaled on a cruel cross in our place. We thank you that as we look at the cross, we should be in no doubt that you are for your people, that you will protect us and provide for all of our need. Holy Spirit, right now, I pray for all of us in this room. There are individual struggles. There are just circumstances in our lives which we are we are finding difficult, and maybe we are struggling to see God's hand at work. Holy Spirit, would you just would you just shine light on those areas of darkness, even right now? Would you show us and convince us that God is at work, even in the darkness, to bring about His glory and our good? Would you take away fear? Would you take away doubt? Would you fill our hearts with a conviction of love and and trust for God? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have pronounced victory over your enemies. We thank you that Satan, sin and death have no hold on us. The worst they can do is take away our physical bodies, but we know that we will be with you for all eternity. Resurrected, enjoying a true and eternal rest with you. Thank you that you have triumphed over the grave. Thank you that you've unleashed us from the shackles of our sin. Thank you that we have no fear in death. As we take this meal now, would you remind us of the power of the cross? Would you remind us of the work of the cross? And as you do, would you help us to trust in you in every circumstance, in every area of our life, for our good? and for your glory.